0: Blog Talk Radio. To seasons of *The Witch* with Raven and Stephanie Bremazi, broadcasting live from Massachusetts. Our location is still a secret, sort of. Just having a little fun there is all. A little fun. We're still uh, convalescing at uh, the rental house that um, we're in until our house is restored in sometime in midsummer next year. So. Um, that seems to be coming along just fine. But we're very happy that you've joined us tonight. Um, you know that Raven and I are often refer to ourselves as stick-in-the-mud witches, um, and that really leads to what we're all about, which is the rootedness of the ancient pagan ways of witchcraft and Wicca, which brings me to tonight's topic, which is also uh, the roots of the ancient roots of Wicca and witchcraft and I'll tell you it it has been a long and winding road that led us to witchcraft as we know it today and I most certainly can speak to that because um, I you know I I didn't practice any formal type of tradition of witchcraft um, for many years before I became initiated I just practiced really a nature veneration that drew me into um, the cycles of nature and participating at that level and so it was a natural revolution for me to discover and um, find my path of today which um, is very fulfilling and um, deep rooted in the, the old ways um, now when we say old ways um, we're talking about again those ancient rooted ways of our ancestors and uh, Raven for many years been doing research and study to find all of these links, these interconnected uh, pieces to a puzzle and formulate and put them together in order to uh, bring a cohesive idea around where did it really begin. And I believe that's really what uh, we're talking about tonight. Is it not, my love? That's
1: well, pretty much it. You know, and I think, you know, if you, one of the things you, you know, the offer to the show tonight is the fact that you were involved in what I would call modern traditions, uh-huh. and so you know, you know that, and then you later on became involved in the, the more traditional, and the older forms. So wow. you know the contrast you
0: well, absolutely experienced
1: it. You know, so I think that, that will be helpful um, to our uh, listeners as well.
0: Well, yeah. and and understanding that transition and and the reality of it rather than the intellectual um, you know discussion in your head about what does it mean you know to be a part of something like that or right. is it better to do your own thing or whatever. And, and with this discussion, I think somebody might better formulate the direction they would want to go into and, and why that would be valuable.
1: Well I think it's important you know to understand the rootedness. Um, I view, let's call it the craft, which would include witchcraft. You know, I often envision it as a giant tree. And you have the roots of the tree, which is the oldest part, that hold it in place and nourish, you know, the rest of the tree. And then you have the trunk, which is the presence in in, uh, modern times, the thing you can look at. And then you have the new leaves and flowers that grow on the branches you know, which kind of represent the new people that come to the craft, the, the new views they have, the, uh, the new practices they add to it. So you have three things going on, basically. Um, but the roots lie beneath the surface and they're unseen. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tempting to just stay with the visual image of the trunk of the tree and the branches, leaves, and flowers and think of the tree as that. Um, but the tree actually is much more than that. In fact, the uh, I've read somewhere that if you look at a tree, the uh, the roots are three times as long below the surface at the height of the tree. Um, so you can see that the, the tree is a lot more than just the visual parts you can readily look at and recognize. So tonight we want to sort of talk more about the roots because we already know a lot about the, the new growth and uh, the new flowers and, and the trunk of the tree. But I think by looking at some of the roots, we can better appreciate um, you know, what we have going. Now, I'm uh, just getting over a cold, so my voice is kind of funny, so bear with me through the show. They're
0: going to be sipping on I'll some chamomile tea. Sipping
1: some hot tea yeah. and um, hoping for the best here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, one of the things that I want to point out when um, people talk about the history of witchcraft, and there's a lot of argument about that the so-called history of witchcraft. You know, you have the academic community, which has one view. You have the practitioners who have uh, often a different view. Um, and uh, so the, the views vary as to what is the history of witchcraft. But I've come to feel over the last few years that there really is no official history of witchcraft. And what I mean by that is people look to scholarly academic works define what is official. And um, when you look at scholarly methodology, there's a thing called ethnographic studies. For example, if you want to learn about a certain tribe in a certain region, you go there and you study them. You live with them if possible. You hear stories about them from other people. So you really study the ethnographic study of these people, their customs, their ways, and you get to know them so that you can write about what they're really like. And that's where a lot of um, things come to us, a lot of knowledge about other people's tribes and nations even come from these, uh, the methodology in the ethnographic studies. However, when we look at the so-called history of witchcraft, there isn't that same methodology. There is no ethnographic study of a people who call themselves witches. What we find um, in academic works is the views of non witches who believe certain things about people they thought were witches. And that whole story of what that is and how that came about is a lot of superstition, folklore, misunderstandings, fears, you know, those types of things. But certainly, not an ethnographic study of witches. Uh, Nobody did that. Few people actually knew anybody who really was a witch. And the people caught up in the witchcraft trials, very few of them were witches, or even folk magic practitioners of any kind. They just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And yet, all the trial materials and the things that come out of the so-called confessions, which were um, forced by uh, extreme pain to torture, that has become the scholarly uh, view of what witchcraft was and what witches were doing. And, you know, it doesn't really it doesn't really work because it's not an ethnographic study of a real people. The uh, modern um, witchcraft views from the academic community are really more about um, folklore, trial, confessions, uh, really about non witches and their beliefs about witches, and certainly not about. Studying which is themselves and what they believe in practice. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about origins, you know, because I hear people today they'll talk about various traditions and um, they'll use words like so and so created this or reconstructed it or you know whatever it might be, pointing to somebody as a founder, let's say, like Gerald Gardner. Um, and some people, when they want to be unkind, they will use the term "made up," which you made that up, um, as though that would be different <laughs> somehow from creating it or assembling it. You know, but I suppose "made up" means there's no basis for it. I, I, I guess that's what they're trying to say. Whereas reconstructing, I guess they grant that you at least have
0: historical you at least have things. something, right, you know, that you right. drew
1: that upon. You know as though you coming up with something yourself has no value which which I think is very short-sighted um, you know like the poets and, and fiction writers, you know they're they're inspired by something within and uh, they made up the story. Well, that doesn't take away from the value of the poem they made up or the uh, book they made up, you know, the character they made up you know,
0: well, and, and the impetus behind those those events are those, Creations taking place as well, um, not only from life experience, from an accumulation of all kinds of things that bring about a gnosis, a personal gnosis, or right. that that coincides with uh, things that are relevant to that gnosis. Right. Because so how else do you get there? I mean, you have to have somewhere fine. to start.
1: Yep. And origins is an important theme for me. I I'm, I like to research and study. Um, old writings and uh, the literature, literature, anthropology, uh, cultural studies to kind of get a view of where we came from as a people. And writings on witchcraft are certainly ancient. They're, they're pre-Christian and very, very old. And a lot of our beliefs um, about witchcraft in the mainstream come from a lot of these old writings. But if you, if you look at this from an ancestral point of view, Everything that the ancestors, you know, put together, created um, was, was based upon their experience of their environment. Some was a misunderstanding, some was a deeper understanding, some was an esoteric, you know, whatever it might have been. But I believe that our views of magic and witchcraft and mysticism come from the attempt of our primitive ancestors to understand the world around them. To understand things like where the weather came from, what caused lightning and earthquakes, and what was these uh, these orbs of light that seemingly rose from beneath the earth, which are the sun and moon, and where did they come from? What were they? You know, they had no they had no way of really understanding what that could be, and they had to find ways. I? I mean, yeah, for it to make sense. of
0: that! I yeah. mean, that is so amazing to think that that they they didn't know what they were then. They just saw that happening. Had to it out. Yeah.
1: But I firmly believe that there were people in our tribes, in our early tribes, who who had what I call the spirit ear, you know, they could hear the voices of other world spirits. And they were guided in certain ways. Um, I think some of the ways that people came up with healing techniques through herbs and rather than simply trial and error I think there may have been spirit voices that led them to some of the things that they discovered and since we our ancestors did eventually formulate a, a view of fairies and spirits and nature spirits and deities so that had to come from them trying to understand and I think it came also from that human spirit that poetic source that we have, the, the dream, the the way we write and create, that's inherent within our being, perhaps soulful. And I so I, I think that that's where a lot of these origins came from, of these stories. It was partly, I guess you could say, human imagining, but I think also human experiencing of something otherworldly. I think that that's where it came from. And that formula still works today. You see, there's no reason for us to believe that what inspired our ancestors or what informed our ancestors doesn't function anymore in humanity. I think it certainly does. And I think that that's a lot, that a lot comes from that in our rituals today. In our magic, when we think we're creating a ritual or putting something together, I think we're tapping into something something very old, this old formula. Um, if you put something together, you reconstruct, I think you're being guided. You know, so made up, I don't know that that really applies. I think that's just a snarky way of someone trying to deny you or dismiss, or dismiss yeah. your connection. Right. You know, um, perhaps they, you know, it doesn't agree with their well, view I, or whatever so I, I, therefore it can't be right in their
0: mind. well what I feel happens is, is that they want that um, there's often um, groups that because of, of like you've mentioned before about their methodology because it doesn't fit in the confines of that that it isn't valid to them as far as that information goes and so they do just throw it out Mm-hmm. and um, that's unfortunate because um, that's kind of the heart of what it is, it's not the mind, it's more about yeah. what the heart is discovering along with the mind and its experience um, and it's existential
1: Right.
0: I mean I, I'm not really sure that I don't, I'm not sure why people need so badly to make sure that if they disagree with you that it's you know that it's like a, it's like a decimal, You know, they just they want to pound that that you didn't do it this way, you didn't discover it this way. The information isn't that you're misinterpreting this. You're, you know, your your sources are outdated or they're not um, qualified or you know something something that goes along to fail. That and I understand that higher education has its value, but I also don't think that higher education automatically is. You know, it's a centrifuge for dismissing missing all, everything else.
1: Well, I think higher education, you know, gives you the data and gives you a formula for making sense of that data. I don't think that that's universally applicable, you know, to the rest of us. But it certainly is a, a way in and of itself. But it's, it's not the be-all and end-all. Well, and I'm
0: not – please don't misunderstand that I'm not dissing academia oh. or higher education. I wish I had had
1: some of that myself, yeah. but I didn't. You know, and it definitely has its value, but I, I, I don't think it trumps everything. And, right. Um, you know, and I think that people, you know, when they say you made something up and they mean it in a derogatory way, I think it's sort of that human nature thing, you know, that by belittling others you, you think you appear, you know, superior. You can put somebody down, it uplifts you in some way, and, uh, and that's just not true. But what I wanted to say, you know, as we talk tonight about Roots, um, I wanted to say that if you're a witch, if you call yourself a witch, if you feel that you are a witch, that's coming from something in it. That's coming from something your spirit recognizes. It's coming from a personal gnosis. Um, and I just wanted to emphasize that because When we talk about roots and we talk about modern witchcraft and modern practices, I'm not trying to compare them for superiority. I'm just showing what I think is valuable, Um, sharing my experience, Stephanie and myself, and uh, for modern practitioners to enhance what they already are connected to. But, you know, I tip my hat to to the modern uh, uh, witches because, you know, they are seeing and adding new insights and they're turning the crystal for us to see other facets so you know it's a a very good thing but I still maintain that even if you're a contemporary witch and and you're not into the roots and maybe haven't even studied things you know beyond a few books you've read you know that is equally valid you know if you feel it and own it it's yours and um, so we're going to be talking about a lot of things tonight Um, So bear in mind that we're not comparing things um, for superiority or what's more valuable. We're just sharing um, a deeper view for whatever um, that may uh, provide for enhancement.
0: Right. And and our credo is ever ancient, ever new. And um, so we do understand.
1: Right. Our tradition of Asperger and Willow is a blend of ancient concepts, and energy flows um, mixed in with the needs for a modern people. So we we call our tradition of Asperger and willow every ancient, ever new. So you can see we're we're trying to seek the balance there. I wanted to talk a little bit about ancient writings. You know, in some um, recent uh, conversations, you know, I, I've been um, reading about people looking at Gardnerian craft within witchcraft. And um, trying to put a a date stamp, basically, on when all this began, and uh, you know, and then people sort of saying there wasn't anything pre Gardner, uh, Gerald Gardner.
0: Well, I, I, but let me just ask, clarify that. Are we talking about Wicca, because he was the father of Wicca?
1: Well, he was actually but, witchcraft. People later on slapped the term Wicca.
0: Well, but that's what I wanted. I want you to define: is how are we talking about yeah. him, in what terms, Wicca or witchcraft? Right. Well, you see we really, them both as the same? Well, that's just where the audience is, yeah,
1: clarify. That's not really where we were, but we are going there. But since, huh? you, since you brought it up, well, you know, Gerald Gardner, for those of you who, who aren't really familiar with him, he wrote some books in the 50s and 60s on witchcraft, that um, basically a Celtic view of uh, witchcraft in the United Kingdom, because he himself is British. Yeah, um, he was British. a British uh, witch. Uh, witch. And so a lot of his uh, views, of course, fit in with that cultural expression. Um, he had uh, tried to put together um, the system, and he found that there were gaps in it. And he was, claims to have been initiated by a, a long-standing uh, uh, covenant tradition, but there were gaps in it. And he worked with uh, another witch, Doreen Valente, who helped him write a book of shadows that, that basically got handed down over time and uh, there were gaps and I I had the privilege of communicating with Elaine for a couple of years and had a phone call or two with her and she told me that Gerald was trying to fill in the gaps of what he thought you know should have been there or was there um in the things that he couldn't uh, you know show and uh, some people claim that he was trying to pull the wool over everyone's eyes by you know fabricating this whole thing but she told me that that really wasn't where she felt he was coming from, that he was trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes or fabricate or make up the tradition that he was trying to teach, but that it was fragmented and he was trying to find ways to make it whole again. And I think that may have brought him into the trouble with people examining it, because later on they found elements from the writings of um, Aleister Crowley and um, some other works, you know, and poetry excerpts clearly you know came from other people but again i think this was his attempt to patch the
0: hole rather
1: than try to pull something off but people have different opinions on that and and tonight's show is really not on that debate Does that cover that very much
2: yeah Yeah.
1: so let's talk a little bit about the ancient writings on witches and witchcraft um, primarily that are um, pre-christian so that we can get a running start at ancient thoughts. Now, the ancient literature, much of it was fiction. So, we're not saying that the fictional depiction of the witches is history, but the value of it to me is that when anyone writes fiction, ancient or modern, they try to put into the fiction, you know, real things, so that the fiction seems more real. I would Relatable. Say relatable yeah. and so that you understand and get a view of the culture like for example if someone is writing a book on uh, Chicago gangs in the 1920s and 30s you know they'll use actual streets and places in Chicago They'll they'll use uh, slang that was used at the time they'll use real people in government offices or whatever and then reading it you know it makes it more real because you can see the sending you know the streets and so, and the slang, you know, the people really spoke in that way. So when you look at ancient writings of witchcraft, it's the same. They're putting in what people believed, whether those beliefs were accurate or not. By reading these ancient writings, we can look at what people believed about witches and witchcraft. And then by adding in other things, folklore and magical knowledge and these types of things, you can then discern really what was true and, and what was just fictional or superstitious. So what we find in the ancient pre-christian writings is we do find um, a religious connection um, medea for example is a priestess of the god of hecate and um, she casts a ritual circle on the ground she uses a cauldron she uses an altar she uses a knife and she uses a wand um, so we see these tools these activities and really the introduction of a deity form in early witchcraft by itself, that doesn't really prove anything, but when we look at other writings from other eras and other writers, we see similar things. So the theme is surviving over time, and my feelings on that is it survives because it was part of the cultural understanding and had true elements to it. When we um, look at the writings in the early Christian era, it's really fascinating because it actually reflects back more on the pre-Christian ideas of witchcraft. Um, Ancient witches were connected to the dead. They spoke with the dead, and um, that shows up in a lot of the stories where people go, heroes, Greek and Roman heroes go to a witch to be put in touch with the spirit of the dead who they need to speak with. So we find this really old theme. And the reason I'm going to focus a little bit more on these writings um, and the connection they have to southern Europe is simply because those are the earliest writings we have. So I just look at those as models. I'm not looking at them as, you know, saying that in Italy it was there first or whatever. But we know that in other regions, you know, the culture is there, the people were not reading and writing yet. Um, So we have to look at the earliest writings we have to get a running start. And they just happened to be uh, Greek and Roman Jews. So, in the Christian era, in the early Christian era, witches are accused of communicating with the dead or professing to be able to communicate with the dead. The church is trying to tell people that witches can't really do that, they just pretend to don't go to their meetings don't go to the crossroads you know to be put in touch with the dead because witches are con artists and they're frauds um, and that they're trying to con grieving widows out of money pretending that they can you know communicate with the dead so you see there's a negative spin as there always had been even in, in, in pre-christian writings that the witch is up to no good and this becomes a constant theme um, throughout the so-called history of witchcraft and uh, but that's typical human nature if you're not part of something if you hear bad things about other people and you tend to believe them because everyone's saying it um, then your mindset becomes based in that and you can't possibly think anything good about them Um, so when witches were up at night um, under the full moon when everyone else was asleep um, or at least home, the idea was, what are they up to out there? No one could grant that they were up to something good, because the good people weren't home. So what were these witches doing out there under the night? And people feared what that might be, and they assumed that they were doing it to them. And so, you know, you have that. So when I research witchcraft, I try to pull those elements out. I try to pull out the feelings that the common person had, and fears and superstitions they had, and I try to look at the backdrop, what was the setting, where were these witches at, and the consistency is night, full moon, circles, altars, wands, you know, cauldrons. Those are the backdrop things that never disappear. The cultural understanding and misunderstandings morph and evolve, so you can see that those things are changing, and I find those things to be less reliable. Whereas when I see the backdrop things continuing century after century used in the same way, then I'm beginning to think, okay, this smacks of a tradition, of a valid tradition, Mm -hmm. of things that people were actually doing. Um, And so you have that. Right. So witchcraft is really still connected to ancestral veneration and connected deeply with spirits of the dead. And that may separate itself a little bit from Wicca, Whereas Wiccan has those elements, it's not really steeped as much as I would say witchcraft is. So sometimes you can kind of separate the two. Now, in the 1960s, when I entered the public arena, um, we had witchcraft and Wicca. But for us in the 1960s, it was the same thing. We found that it was easier to say we were Wiccan. Um, than it was to say we were witches. If the mainstream people, if you said you were Wicca, then they'd say, oh, what is that? You 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 know you had a few seconds to try to explain before they slammed the door in your face. Whereas if you started out saying, I'm a witch, the door okay. slammed immediately, you know, because they thought certain things about you. They thought you killed sacrificed animals, you know, you killed babies, you did all these thre- heinous things, and you worship the devil and, you know, all that. And I think it's interesting to note that Christianity didn't successfully insert the devil uh, fully in place in witchcraft until the 15th century. So that took them over a thousand years wow. to morph the pre-Christian idea of pagan views of witchcraft into Christian views of witchcraft with the devil. So that's a, the devil was kind of a latecomer in the scene but he certainly took his place fully in mainstream uh, culture now because Mainstream people, if they think of witchcraft, they think of the devil.
2: That's um, the
1: first thing about Yeah, that you worship the devil. Yeah, they you know, we have them these them misconceptions. Yeah. And we have misconceptions about all kinds of people today, people from other countries, people from other states, you know. Um, we think things about them that, that aren't true, and some of the things are true, and some of the things are stereotypes, and some of the things are based upon bias. So these views we hold about our enemies, uh, people held about witches. You know, when I grew up in the 60s, we were taught to fear the Russians. You know, they were portrayed as our enemy, that they were out to destroy us, which we could not trust them. And, um, you know, that, that was our view of Russians, the Russian people and the Russian government for a long, long time. And it wasn't really until I met Russian immigrants and uh, and people, you know, from Russia who were visiting and got to know them a little bit, but I I saw what I had been, what my mind had been poisoned to believe about them. I still believe that the Russian um, uh, government is an enemy to the United States, but I don't believe the Russian people are. Um, So your views have to change in accordance with your experience, and uh, that's where a lot of my views have evolved over time. Uh, When I write now about ancient practices and I see them as valid, it's because I perform them, I've experienced them, I've applied them into my modern practice, and I found them to be um, pretty potent.
0: Are you ready to take a little break? I think a little
1: break might be in order, Um, and I could sip a little bit more tea and come back and talk about some of the um, Things that were written about the practice of witchcraft and the beliefs of witches that really show a different picture than the mainstream stereotypes. So I think that that may be kind of cool. And then we'll move on to talk about uh, things up in, to and including contemporary
0: witchcraft. All right. So right now we'll take this little mini break and listen to a song by the lovely Kellyana. Um, I Walk with the Goddess, which is one of my favorite songs. Uh, and then we'll be back, and, and we'll keep on chatting. Hope you join us. Thank you.
2: I walk with the car
0: Welcome back to Seasons of the Witch with Raven and Stephanie Bromati. Tonight's topic is all about the ancient roots of witchcraft and uh, we've just been talking about some of the ancient writings and I believe Raven wanted to talk a little bit more about that topic.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to touch on on some rooted ideas um, because um, some of the views are that there wasn't really anything organized or, you know, that we would look at as witchcraft prior to uh, Gerald Gardner's uh, writings and uh, what he revealed. But actually, in um, older writings, uh, the witch does appear within an organized sect um, depiction. For example, uh, Professor Ruth Martin, who's a uh, historian, wrote in her book, Witchcraft and the Inquisition in Venice. 1550 through 1650 that the witch was a member of an organized sect. So that was the view in in those centuries that it wasn't really about an individual as much as it was about people who were organized and that is really what bothered the church by the way is that they felt it was organized that it wasn't just little individuals here and there in the village. Um, So that became you know kind of a, a scary thing for the church. And uh, then we also have um, the writings of uh, Girolamo Tartarachi in the 1700s. And uh, he wrote some interesting things. Uh, He wrote uh, the following, and I'm quoting, The witches of our time are derived from and are the offspring of the ancient ones who were followers of Diana and Erodiade, and that their crime is witchcraft, just as it was in the past. So he's writing about, he's calling it in in our time, which is really the 1700s. He also says the assembly of modern witches, his time period, is nothing less than the ancient ones, and because of this succession, they enjoy all the rights and privileges of their ancestors. So he he viewed it as an ongoing um, society, if you will, of witches. Now, he drew the attention of the church at that time because the church's view was that witches uh, worship the devil and that witchcraft was a distortion of the Christian mass, of the Catholic mass and that, um, you know, that's what witchcraft was all about. So they they were very upset with him for saying that it was an ancient religion. So he was forced to write an Apologia. And in it he contradicted himself and went with the church, uh, church's view. So depending on which copy you get of Tartarati's work. You'll find uh, either the older one where he's claiming antiquity and then the newer version in which he's saying, no, it's modern and they're worshiping the devil. Now, you also have um, Francesco Guazzo's uh, writings in the 1700s, about the same time as Tartarati. And he says that witches adhere to certain laws within their society. So he's seeing that they're organized with rules and regulations and that they have a society. So again, we're looking at something structured, at least that's what they were viewing it in that time. And one of the laws that he quotes, which suggests that he had some access to them, um, he says, do not thrust your pitchfork into another's harvest. And um, that's a very old law, and it talks about non-interference. Uh, where witches would not undo something another witch had done or take credit for something another witch had done. Um, And so you would have to go to the witch and talk them into reversing it rather than find a witch who was willing to do it because the old law was do not thrust your pitchfork into another's harvest. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting thing. And then when we fast forward to um, the late 1900s, I mean, I'm sorry, 1800s. Um, we have the continuing theme, because you have a uh, folklorist whose name was Lady Vera de Vera, and she wrote an article in a magazine called La Rivista of Rome in June 1894. And she said, the community of Italian witches is regulated by laws, traditions, and customs of the most secret kind Possessing special recipes for sorcery. So here we have this view that is pre pre-Gardenarian of something pretty structured and of witches gathering in groups. And then when you read about the particulars of it, you find pretty much the same things. Uh, you find witches gathered in circles, you find them having an altar, you find them using various tools, a wand, a blade um you know different things of that nature um in some of the southern european writings they they gather sky flag uh, meaning that they were not wearing any clothing um, which also showed up in uh, later in Gardnerian craft so you have a lot of these views um, that really were there prior now the rituals that we find in modern times Gardner and, and so forth um, on up into today's times a lot of these are based upon what I would say ancient models or pagan themes but they may not have all been present at one time in other words it may not have actually been a tradition a cohesive, a cohesive of, tradition that, that of, got yeah. passed on intact. Right. although I think those things did exist Right. but in the case of Gardner I mean it's pretty clear when you look at the material that he's added things from Crowley and, and certain poets of the era and earlier and you know he was mixing things in But I don't see that as invention. I think it's kind of reconstruction plus, you know, wishful thinking of what he, you know, felt was was good to bridge those gaps. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think it invalidates anything. So the practices. We can say that the, the the core of the practices, the core of the beliefs are ancient, they are pre-christian, they are pagan. But the modern application of them is different, can be different. I think we are, a lot of us are doing things that are ever ancient, ever new within our own ritual circles. That's probably very true. I think that if you had a time machine and you could bring a witch from you know, pre-christian era and one maybe from the middle ages and put them in one of our circles, Um, I think that they would recognize certain things, and other things would be alien to them, and vice versa. I think if we went back in time and joined uh, um, a coven in the uh, pre-Christian era or in the Middle Ages, Renaissance period, I think we would find things that we recognized, and then we would find things that we didn't. And we would probably be very shocked about some of the things that we saw, um, especially if it's pre christian um, because it would uh, uh, probably offend some of the modern sensitivity, <laughs>
2: um,
1: but nevertheless, you know that is our lineage. I believe we have a spiritual lineage, if not a historical lineage. We definitely have a spiritual lineage from those who came before us, and I think that that's uh, you know a huge part of this is that we we are building. Upon ancient models, and we are standing upon the shoulders of our ancestors to look even further up the road. And that today, a lot of us are trailblazers. We're we're um, moving that road forward for those who follow behind us.
0: Well, and aren't we also speaking to the needs of what is modern or what is Mm -hmm. you know today, um, bringing it into a a current understanding? Sure. Um, I still think. Wanting to uh, create something that's still ancient, but I'll, sometimes I think of the things that, for instance, we have on our altars. I'm sure our ancient ancestors did not have access to that kind of stuff.
1: Some of the things, yeah, you know, especially presents.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it was very simplified and, and very primal, I'm sure. Um,
1: well, I think for the you know, in days of old, you know. In, uh, Twig you found on the ground, you know, could be used ritually, magically. Uh, flat rock, uh, you know, um, the things of nature were, you know, bored You know, these were the things I'm sure our ancestors were using before anything like an apamay, a chalice, you know, and uh, a wand with a crystal on the end, and all these things we have today um, were used. Um, we were using things that were much more primitive before that time period. But I think we were using them. In fact, we know that um, in the ancient cult of Mithra, um, well, Roman cult, that the, uh, the, the uh, practitioners of that sect did use a wand, a cup, a pentacle, and a blade. And they also used a sword, which is a very Gardnerian kind of assembly of tools there. But that is you know thousands of years old. You know. So it did evolve and I think it evolved from sticks and gourds and mm-hmm. things you know on us shells. yeah shells and all these yeah. things uh, sure. you know it eventually became the modern setting that we have now. I think it would probably would have been extremely rare for a peasant in the Middle Ages to possess a silver chalice you know. well, um, but that's what we use today.
0: Well when you go when you were talking about our spiritual heritage, uh versus our you know our religious or even magical heritage that a lot of it isn't it dependent on the needs of the people who are behind it or doing it out of you know so at one point it's religious at another point it's more magical at another point it's more spiritual i mean doesn't it to change as time goes on that the need you know, when I look at different traditions and see what they're doing compared to what I do in my practice, I almost feel like our goals are different, or the outcome is different in in, in what I'm pursuing and what they're pursuing. And so, the rootedness to that, I think, is where wherever they go back to define to that rootedness of what. They are trying to accomplish through their witchcraft that you know, being a generalization, mm-hmm. um, has to do with like what you were saying. Where where do they go to find that? How do, where is their ley line? What is it that they want to bring forward? That is it something that they want to validate their tradition with their practice, or is this just information that unfolds and so then it becomes a it, it has a mind of its own as it evolves, you know. Right. For instance, when you're finding research stuff, mm -hmm. you just take that stuff and assemble it. You're not trying to take something and morph it into something else.
1: Yeah, I'm not trying to put a uh, round peg in a square hole. Right. Um, I'm looking at ancient writings, and I follow the theme. And when it's a consistent theme, I see validity within it because it hasn't morphed over the centuries and then when I see things that have morphed right. I have to do reverse engineering to get back to what was the original model that, that went and wrong. And where
0: did it start to yeah. unravel or yeah. where did it start to right. expand?
1: And so I've spent decades doing that and uh, I think people have misunderstood you know what, what my work is about um, because I'm just, I'm just trying to clarify and look for roots and nourishment and and what we've what we built our ways upon. But today, you know, a lot of people today will say that witchcraft is not a religion or even a spirituality. Uh-huh. They'll just say it's simply a practice. Well, I mean, what
0: do you mean by that? It's a magical practice of sorcery. Right. It's a magical practice yeah. of magic. Spell spellwork. It's crafting. spellcraft. Spellwork,
1: and I would and add crafting. And I would add um,
0: yeah.
1: well, uh, herbal remedies and right. techniques right. and things like that. Right. So just something to do. Um, it's a it's a craft you know, like uh, being able to make a, like a carpenter can make a table or a cabinet, you know, that's his craft. And so I think for some people, witchcraft is just that, it's a craft. And so they, that way, they're not really looking for spiritual lineage. They're not looking for roots. They're satisfied with, with their ability to just craft, to spell, to work magic, to, to heal, yeah, but they're going to the
0: sources for that
1: still. I mean, well, some of them aren't really. I mean, there's. I mean, they read a book or two on witchcraft and then they, you know, then they go off and decide, you know, how their craft is going to be. There are standards in some of the books that people read on witchcraft. Because most people that are even call the craft and not in spirituality or religion, they're still familiar with concepts like the four tools, you know, athame, chalice, wand, and pentacle. They may not use them in any religious or spiritual context, but they've read about them, and they've incorporated them. So all I'm saying is some of the contemporary witches probably are not really interested in rootedness, and therefore probably aren't listening to the radio show. Mm-hmm. But what I'm suggesting is that even somebody that just considers it a craft can benefit from the ancestral views of these things, and where some sources of power come from. Because some people that practice it just as a craft will still call upon spirits. They don't necessarily have a theology or a, a religious or spiritual structure, you know, of these things that they're calling upon. But they've read about them and they feel or felt them or experienced them. So they may be able to communicate with the spirit of a stream or the spirit of a rock as a modern experience from personal gnosis. And they're not necessarily looking at, well, how did my ancestors view that? And how did my ancestors call upon them? And what benefit would I get get from from having that older connection when heck, I can walk out in the woods today and pick up a rock and I feel connected, why do I need anything else? Mm -hmm. And if they really feel that way and it really works for them, then that argument is sound. Um, I just think that the more you understand the people that came before you
0: and the energies
1: that they worked with and what has passed into your hands, the more able you are to move beyond your the limitations of self. Because there are limitations to self.
0: I mean, even in the
1: mundane. People are only so strong, people are only so bright. There's a mixture of IQs. Uh-huh. There's a mixture. Everybody has their limitations. Uh-huh. Some people do well at math. Some people suck at math. Uh-huh. You know, these are the limitations that humans have. And and when it comes to witchcraft, on your own, it's the same. You there are limitations that you have. Um, but if you could add the abundance of individuals' knowledge and experience that came before you, then you can extend yourself out in a greater way than you can just by the things you are able to do, you know, naturally or intuitively. Those are valuable things, but by adding your ancestral view to it, it it, it, it enhances all of that. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely, yeah. That's Um.
1: So, one of the that we find in, in um, modern times, when people talk about traditional witchcraft, there's a lot of conflict there because you have people that think that it's only British, so they'll come from British traditional Wicca views. Um, they'll, uh, there are societies that base themselves upon Egyptian teachings or um, Rosicrucian teachings or Order of the Golden Dawn, or, Crowley's uh, silver star, I believe it was. Um, And so they're drawing upon all these different things, and then what we find in the midst of that is this focus on a Hebraic uh, foundation in which we have Lilith and Lucifer and the misunderstandings of those characters. And a lot of people will call that traditional witchcraft, that that connection to,
0: that?
1: to this Hebraic system is traditional witchcraft, but to me that's kind of an import from the Middle East into and Europe. The Middle- and early Europeans didn't have those concepts uh, until they started mixing with Middle Eastern cultures and Egyptian cultures and that type of thing. Um, so to me, traditional witchcraft is older in European terms than the introduction of like Satan and Lilith and all these things you know that would have come much later to our mm-hmm. European mm-hmm. ancestors. They had already formulated the world, its mysticism, its magic, its deities, its spirits long before they were exposed to so foreign right. themes. And right. So, uh, so I, I can't say how, how far back that goes in witchcraft and the argument becomes was witchcraft in the Middle East the same thing as witchcraft in Europe. And when you look at the Hebrew definition and words they use for witch, it's actually quite different. They're describing a practitioner who's quite different from um, what witch means in Europe. Um, but I suppose it's close enough for some people to think, well, that was their cultural version of a witch. You, know, you don't have to match cultures to be a witch. But I, I think that that's true as well. But uh, that would be an argument now. I, I've, I'm not an expert on traditional witchcraft as defined in modern times. I've been doing a lot of reading on it, trying to really understand it um, so that I can integrate it in with uh, you know, my previous knowledge and understanding experience. I find it difficult. Um, a lot of them aren't really very open in what they write about, so you have to sort of read between the lines and then compare it to one thing or another. Um, to gauge it as to, okay, how does this fit in? Um, what I find less frustrating is kind of what we've tapped into in the Asperger and Willow tradition, um, because we were led to an entity, and um, that entity connected us to what I call the stream that flows from the origins. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of kind of drink from the fount of origins, and um, with the Ash, Birch, and Willow tradition, we've avoided a lot of the complications I encountered in other traditions because we don't look for cultural markers. We don't look for cultural expressions because those limit us. I mean, us is all of us. For example, if I use the term, if I call upon the goddess Diana, I'm limiting feminine divinity down to the idea of my understanding of a particular goddess with particular
2: um, powers
1: and attributes, you know, and so I'm I've really limited myself to express itself to me because I've constrained it um, and therefore I'm stuck with cultural view and I don't have a worldly or even a universal view because I have a cultural view. Um, nothing wrong with the cultural view but it is limiting, it's limiting itself, it's limiting um, so what we found through the Count of origins is this idea of, of non-cultural expressions, and that titles um, free us to hear divinity speak rather than to give divinity attributes that we maintain as a culture. So, for example, in the Persian Willow tradition, we call the celestial goddess of the white round, represented by the moon amidst the stars. Um, That way we're not calling her by any particular name that would draw people to say, oh, that's Celtic or Italian or German or Greek or Nordic or whatever. Um, It doesn't smack of a cultural um, um, flavor at all, and therefore um, it's easier to experience deity in in more of a rawness, I think and more of a a purity so that you can communicate and allow the deity to speak to you, introduce itself and teach you about itself by using a title that doesn't constrain divinity to a cultural representation and understanding. So I think it's really important. (laughs) And again, I'm not speaking in terms of superiority, but I'm talking about
0: Talking about our experience, our experience, but
1: also what I what I yeah. think can enhance things, you know, um. by by by
0: making it less defined, more expansive, mm-hmm. and um, it's funny because even in the terms of you know a tradition itself, that there's um, you know there's there's reasons to follow a structure because it leads to deepening of understanding of the mysteries that are, you know, revealed as you walk along that path. Right. And I, I do think in some ways it, it, it gives you a, 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 like you were saying, we do have limits, but in this case, that the limits, self-limitation, is really um, dictated by the person rather than being able to take the material and really be expansive on that as well. You know? mm. She is a deeper, pla- I mean, he is a deeper place play, this the white round. I mean, there's so much more there to explore or to have come back to you than there is, for instance, with, you know, a, a god that's defined as the Dabda. He is this, and right. this is what he does. Right. This is where he lives. <laughs> this is what he'll do and what he won't do. You right, know, I mean, these, right. are, these yeah. are finite things that yeah, have been assigned of to, to these um, personifications of, of the divine.
1: But some people like that finite. They like the kind of coziness of having everything spelled out.
0: Well, I mean, we use defined We use, defined we use you know, Hecate, we have Diana. we have... Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like we're void of it, it's just that in our personal practice that we, we utilize our...
1: Sure. Yeah, and experts in Willow, I mean, you're free to call upon if you want to do that. But, you know, for me, if I sit down and I decide I want to connect with uh, Hecate Hecate, um, I realize that I'm, I'm interfacing with a deity that I have read about, heard things about, and have expectations about, envision her as in um, control of this or that realm, and so there's already a pre-existing thing that I'm relating to, and, and then everything I do and think is based upon that preconceived notion. Mm-hmm. And I have that experience based upon that preconceived notion. Rarely does Hecate ever, you know, in, in, in intercede and say, "Well, let me tell you about things you don't know about me." You know, right. That has happened on occasion, but generally she just seems fine with you working within that model that that had preexisted, and she's just working with you. Um, whereas when I work with the experts in Willow deities, of the deep wooded places when I first encountered him from the Fount of Origin, um, it was meeting something that felt familiar and yet was unknown to me. And I had to work with him to really understand who and what he was, and to leave behind some of my preconceived notions of an answered God, or a God of the woods, Mm -hmm. and to see what was being portrayed or delivered by an entity who was teaching me about it was quite a unique experience. It's an ongoing experience.
0: I and mean, it is, it is so, it, it's so... I don't even know how to, I don't know what the words to use it. I mean, I'm not trying to be overly, um, you know, excitable about it, but when you're walking in the forest and you think about he in the deep wooded places, it's the vibration or the resonance of that that uh, environment that I right. feel him in. Right. It, it, it he is that
1: he is the deep place. yeah the mind of the forest right. the soul of the forest right. you can feel it and and I think that that's why the the antler god you know became prominent in some of the uh, the pagan sects then later on into the witchcraft uh, some witchcraft systems is because that primal experience of our ancestors in when we lived in the forest the stag was a powerful being and um, you know, its antlers look like tree branches, and the tree branches, you know, pressed up against the celestial sky, and there was all these images you could put into that.
0: Well, and along with that, can you briefly talk about the covenant between the hunted and the hunter? Yeah. I, because, I mean, that yeah. is part and parcel of that connection to that energy there of, right. of man's um, connection to that in so many ways beyond you know I mean food and clothing and you know everything that it is
1: yeah that that uh, covenant uh, the hunter and the hunted it's something that Joseph Campbell talked about a little bit and it also shows up in some uh, anthropological archaeological studies um, essentially what it is is the, the stag held such prominence in, in the cultural thinking of the woodland people And they depended upon it for food and clothing and tools. Um, But it also had a spiritual connection of the being itself, um, the prowess, the the majesty of the creature.
0: Um, And
1: so when they killed one, um, they apologized to the beast, the life force of the beast, for having to take its life. But they promised it renewal of life in exchange for the gift of giving itself uh, for food, clothing, and tools. So the covenant between the hunter and the hunter was, I will kill you, but I will cause you to live again. And the way that they did that was through subtle ways and then also through ritual ways. One of the ritual ways they did it is the antlers would be taken and made into a headdress. And then the person in the ritual would dance to the drums or flutes or you know whatever the music might have been at the time and thus animate the stag, give life back to the stag through mimicking it being animated once again in the ritual dance with the antlers. So the the covenant was fulfilled, I return life to you. Um, They would also sometimes uh, wear an antler tip on a necklace and then there would be many people would be wearing them and so that that one rack of antlers was being animated by multiple people in the tribe and passed on. You know, a father may pass on an antler tip to his son. Um, And so the life force of the antler beast was always being honored and venerated and moved through um, generations.
0: And and also the understanding of the the representation of that tip to the individual, of its virileness and everything that is of that.
1: Right and thus the life force is being honored, the covenant between the hunter and the hunter is being honored. Um, They would also do things like dip an arrow or a spear into the blood of the slain stag and shoot the arrow or thrust the spear out into the woods in the belief of wherever that landed, that that stag would be reborn as a new stag, um, you know, in the next season, mating season. Um, So they imagined that they could continue the life of that particular stag, which is important. That's sort of the idea of reincarnation. You know, that the individual returns, the individual soul. Here is the individual stag. And even today, though, you know, we have uh, we have ritual or custom, whatever you might want to call it, with people that hunt deer. Um, I've read and I've heard from people that have the experience that when someone slays their first uh, buck, that the uh, the more seasoned people will take the guy over to to the deer and they'll cut open the heart from the chest of the stag and the person that killed it is supposed to take a bite of the heart. And they by doing that they they get the courage and the prowess of the stag.
0: Yeah, it's not happening here. No,
1: I would you know, <laughs> I mean, it's it's not the most desirable thing, but I yeah. see it as a rite of passage. Yeah. You know, that that is a yeah. custom that really really stems back to this idea of venerating the life force of the stag, like as our ancestors did. Today, you know, to take a bite out of the heart of a, of a mighty stag that you slew is to enter into a covenant, a blood covenant with that, as had been in days of old. So these customs are still with us. But they, they, they lose, in some cases, the pagan understanding of the origin. The thing itself is still done. The core meaning is still there but it's transformed into modern expressions. And I think that that's what we have, you know, today we have modern expressions of something that's very, very old, but the heart and the soul is still there. And to me, that's what I'm talking about, when I'm talking about the roots and being a root tender, is for people like you and me, and the people in our tradition, To see value in the spirituality, in the soul, in the heartfelt things that really help us recognize who we are, who we are as a people, witches, who we are as individuals, um, where our magic is rooted in, I think that these are really important things because we can draw back upon them. Things can knock us down as individuals, they can dishearten us, you know, they can you know, we fall away from our practice uh, for whatever reasons. And so we can sometimes start stop practicing the crap. But if we're truly witches, we never stop feeling it. We never stop the connection to the rootedness of where this all came from, what was handed to us, what was taught, what whispers in the air to us. You know, in the 60s, we used to call it the voice of the wind. and Somebody would say, "Well, how do you know that?" And to you, it was I heard it from the voice of the wind. It came from something otherworldly. It came from something beyond me. And um, I think that there's a great deal of validity in that. You know, but there's a big difference between hearing the spirit of the wind and pulling something out of your ass. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there's a big difference.
0: Let's take a little break, and um, let's hear another song, and how about Fairytale by Spiral Dance, uh, this fantastic group out of Australia, um, who we personally met, and the people are amazing. And you can purchase their uh, CDs as well. But um, let's have a little listen to um, to Spiral Dance and Fairytale, and we'll be right back.
2: Rise and spread its beams across the skies, and they'll speak their secrets wise in the arms of the great stone circle. We go around with a shin We dance all night till the sun does rise and spread its feet across the skies. Then I'll speak that she could flock from the arms of the big stone circle. And if you go around with a shining message. Jump through the flames, see the flames burn bright. See the world through elfin eyes in the arms of the
0: great stone circle. Firelight, fire in the night. Jump through the flames, see the flames burn bright. See the world through elfin eyes in the arms of the great stone circle. Welcome, welcome back to Seasons of the Witch with Raven and Stephanie Gomazzi. Oh. Um, so, I wanted to take this time um, right now, this little break moment, to just uh, talk about a couple of other things that are not necessarily the roots of ancient witchcraft, but certainly had to do with witchcraft. Uh, and that is that this is in several days from now, we will be doing oracle readings at the Robin's Nest in Bellingham, Mass. If you're interested in having us do a reading, uh, we do it together. David and I read the cards together. Um, we use both of our decks, the uh, Well-Worn Path and Hidden Path, and it's a very unusual type of reading because you really are getting the, the male and female. I hate to use a gender-based like that, but you're getting...
1: Masculine and feminine perspective.
0: Yeah, masculine and feminine perspective, and it's always very interesting. Uh, so if you have any free time on Sunday, come on down to the Robin Nest, and uh, feel free to call Robbie and make an appointment if you like. Um, I'm sure there's some available, and uh, love to see you. And then the next thing we're going to do is also at the Robin's Nest. This will be the last event for us, for uh, last official event for us for the year, and that is we do Yule um, at the Robin's Nest. And this will be, I think, our fifth year of doing it. And um, it's a it's a wonderful time. Um, Robbie has the uh, the room is just decorated beautifully, and um, it's uh, it's a great little ritual that we do and,
1: and celebration and
0: celebration. So if you feel uh, you would like to come and be a part of that, again, all you have to do is just call Robbie, and uh, she'll, she'll she'll reserve a spot for you. It is on I believe. Oh, I'm going to get it wrong, Robbie, well, we don't get mad. I believe it's on the um, 15th of December, Friday the 15th of December. And um, we'll
1: check on that. It'll be posted on our Yeah, Facebook. we'll post
0: it on the, on the wall. So in fact, I think I just did post it not too long ago. Um, then uh, we also have a question coming up um, that somebody asked in the chat room that we'd like to answer to. I just also wanted to say that we will not be attending SantheaCon in 2018. Uh, We're still, um, you know, we still have the house to deal with. Uh, There's a lot going on still in our personal lives, and uh, we really need to stay home this year and kind of beef up um, and get ready (laughs) for whatever's coming next. Um, So I just wanted to put that out there. We're sad we won't be, but hopefully we'll be there in 2019. So um, anyway, Raven, would you uh, like t- uh, the, the question in the in the chat room is what is your opinion on Dion
1: Fortune? Well, for those of you who don't know Dion, Dion Fortune, she she was a an occultist, and um, I believe she was at one time uh, in the Golden Dawn. I could be mistaken, but I think she was. Um, then she uh, created her own order, I think it was called the Order of Light. Um, Theosophical? Um, no, a it, Yeah, it was more of a society, yeah. yeah. But she wrote, um, she wrote a lot of fiction. And her fiction was actually based upon actual experience experiences that she had. So her fictions are not entirely fiction, so they're kind of worth reading about because she is actually one of the characters in each of the stories, but you don't know it's her. Sometimes it's a man. and um, But she talks about um, ritual techniques and uh, correspondences, some uh, magical woods and plants and stuff that were used, and so it's really worth worth reading. Now, she later on wrote some factual uh, uh, non-fiction books, which were uh, about magic, occultism, other worlds and planes, and I think wasn't they in the uh, chat room did they refer to a particular book?
0: Yeah, reading uh, psychic self defense. Psychic self defense.
1: Yeah. Um, I put her up pretty high among uh, magical people and occultists of her era. Um, some of the things that they believe and taught in, in that time is a bit dated, and so you have to kind of look, you know, in, into uh, uh, other ways of viewing that particular thing, but. Um, She's one of the few people that uh, didn't write with uh, little tricks to uh, keep you from stumbling upon the truth. Uh, some occultists did. They, they put blinders in there which would throw you off. They would put in incorrect correspondences and they figured um, if you were able to figure out that they were wrong and then go to the trouble of finding out what might have been right then you could perceive on your own you were savvy enough to do it. Oh my gosh. But a lot of them put stuff in. So you have to be really careful. Crowley does a little bit of that. Um, some other writers of the period do as well. So you have to be careful. Um, but Dean Fortune doesn't do that. And uh, I think she's reliable. Um, and I think she was a very sound uh, occultist. I've, I've read just about everything she wrote. And the only thing I ever had trouble with was uh, a book that was called something like the, Cause, the Doctrine I think it was. I had to read that stuff for three times <laughs> to figure out what she was saying, um, it's a very complex book. Um, I read it in my twenties and again in my thirties and then I think late forties and uh, finally I was able to really put it together, but uh, she's, she's very highbrow. Um, so other occultists, you know, of the time period, you had a lot of societies back then, um, the Rosicrucians and the Golden Dawn and Crowley's uh, order and uh, a lot of other things, and some of them actually, interestingly enough, connected with what they thought were um, extraterrestrial beings, which I thought was interesting. And when you read about those particular writings, almost. Pardon me. Almost without exception, they point to the Pleiades. And uh, what I find interesting about that is when you look at some of the island um, religions, like uh, the Polynesians and whatnot, they have stories of the star gods. These were gods that came down from the stars, and a lot of them point to the Pleiades as the origins of these star gods. And there's a, um, several Indian tribes, and I think one is the uh, Ojibwa, uh, who also talk about uh, star gods, and they point to the Pleiades as the home of the gods, of, the, of these star beings, and, I'm sorry, they didn't call them gods, of these star beings. So it's interesting to see these early societies using um, these elements. Now these people were pretty good at reconstruction. And they knew their mythologies. They studied ancient writings, you know, and uh, ancient Egyptian teachings, Hermes, Trimagestus, the philosophical Greek writings and whatnot. So a lot of the order was, uh, a lot of these orders were built upon those premises, the philosophical people, and um, and the ancient occult lore. And so this filters into the writings of the time period. So a lot of the people writing at that time to you fortune and um, Yates and uh, let's see who else uh, Francis Barrett, and Alexis Levi. They were all sort of cut their teeth on on these stories in that cultural uh, mm-hmm. setting. So they shared a commonality. But what was interesting about that is they they went off individually. Um, so there were key differences, but they had that common thread, you know, holding them together. There was what I what I. Think is this rootedness, you know what's flowing. Um, people do different things with it, you know, when it flows to you. Uh, people create, they assemble, they reconstruct. Um, and I really don't see where made up comes into any of that. Um, I know in the Ashberg and Willow tradition, you know, we have connected with and experienced an ancient current that's flowing. Um, And we have constructed a vessel to contain it. Now, the vessel is the tradition and its ways and, you know, methods and all that. That's the structure. And that is created and assembled. But into that flows something much, much older. It's what our ancestors were connected with. It's what empowered them. It's, It's what moved them along. It's what allowed occultists to face persecution and to risk their very lives to practice the things they did in the societies that that rejected them and and would kill them if they knew that they were practicing these things. You have to believe pretty strongly in something. You have to experience something pretty strongly in order to face the uh, possibility of being killed for what you do.
0: So what do you think that they were, what were they looking for? What were they wanting to experience through those types of things? Yeah. I mean, well, well, I, I don't think just, I mean life, you know, because life was so different then yeah. compared to what it is now and what we're looking for in our practice or, mm-hmm. you know, in this time and space, what's happening and how is that assisting us and how is that directing us and guiding us and our focus, you know, attention put on that. To where it leads us, where right. I wonder what was going on with them. Were they, were they after the same? Were they seeking the same thing that seekers seek, seek today? Or again, was it dictated by what was going on, you know, in the world? And you know what I'm saying? Or, yeah. or is that is that underlying current of occultism always been the same? And they're always looking for the same thing. I don't know.
1: Well, I, I think it is. I think at the core they are looking for the same thing. It's just the people look in different places for it. Um, what is at the core for our ancestors and us today and everything that we're doing, I would boil it down to seeking purpose. Why are we here? It's three great mysteries. I was
0: just going to say, well, Where did, did we come from? And,
1: uh... Why are we here and what happens after this lifetime? Mm-hmm. And for our ancestors it was a little bit more simple. life wasn't as complicated um, and and yet they they bathed, themselves in the experience of the spirit of the Lamb. They knew that communication was coming to them from somewhere else. And because they believed that, it gave them hope and confidence because they felt something knew more than they did and was able to guide them to finding their purpose. Mm -hmm. So out of that came spirit voices, oracle methods. Charms, uh, veneration, offerings, mm-hmm. to encourage the spirit voice, to carry them, to speak to them, to teach them purpose. Why am I here?
0: But, but, but somebody asked, is that, it, it was, was a big part of that was connected with divinity? I don't think so necessarily.
1: I, I think divinity came later down the road. Yeah. I think that originally it was more primal. They knew there was something there, and I think it was spirits, spirit voices or entities before it was deities. I think deities came
0: spirits of the land, spirits of yeah, the sky, spirits like a, of, the of a land. rock, yeah. something that yeah.
1: could talk. You could carry a rock in your pocket mm-hmm. or your pouch. Um, I think the deity came much, much later when they began to look outside of their containment field of culture to then try to figure out, you know, what were the stars. Mm-hmm. What was the sun and moon? Where did thunder and lightning come from, you know? That seemed to be above us. Something greater, almost out of other, our control and, and out worldly. of this
2: world. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely.
1: And so I think that maybe that was the emphasis for, yeah. oh, wait a minute, there's something greater than these spirits, you know? And, and so, you know, I, I think that that's probably where we started to interface with the idea of what eventually became Deity.
2: Right.
1: Um, but again, some modern practitioners of witchcraft, they don't work with Deities, so to them, it's irrelevant. Well, I, and some do, and it's very relevant. So
0: I want to I want to go back to addressing the idea of purpose because I know um, as I have now um, advanced towards renewal at this stage of my life, looking back and not looking back at myself, but looking back at a younger generation now that I see. It's it's not a desperation to find purpose, but it's really an anxious thing to find purpose. And I think it's because there's so much pressure from everywhere. There's so many people involved in watching and pushing and pressuring because of because of the way society is now, because of the um, electronic age. That I think that that younger people, I can see how purpose changes over each decade of life, because things change and shift.
1: And well, I don't think purpose changes so much as the way that people go about finding purpose, or even really understanding that that's what they're trying to do.
0: Oh, I think your purpose shifts from decade to decade. You're a maiden, you're a mother, you're a crone. Those are definitely different roles that you're playing, and the purpose behind them is is dictated by the choices that you've made in your life and where it's leading you to. I mean there is purpose in being a mother, right? There's purpose in Well, of being yeah. A,
1: but I'm talking more about
0: esoteric. Yeah. Okay. I'm
1: talking more about purpose of even being uh, in the world. I you know, agree. I agree. The soul. Why are we even doing this?
0: See how men know, and women think differently both analytical
1: versus conceptual Yeah.
0: That you just you you just witness that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So while there is purpose in, in aspects of our life, I mean there's a purpose in the work we do and parenting we do, but that's not the kind of purpose I'm talking about. Right,
0: I, I know what you're saying. It's, it's, it's soul purpose.
1: People have been trying it's, to it's, figure out yeah. why we're here and what is the meaning okay. of life, you know. Life has its own meaning. Um, yeah, because
0: to, by the time you recognize it, yeah, yeah I mean yeah. it is. What is that? Life is its own answer. Own answer yeah. Yeah.
1: What is the meaning of life? Life okay. is its own answer. Living it. You know, to cherish it, to, to embrace it, to um, you know, there's that line from The Martian Chronicles. I've got it in the mm-hmm. video on my um, in my photo album. Um, and he talks about the meaning of life, and uh, um, he says life is to be savored, luxuriated in, um, and that it is it is in and of itself the answer. But I think you know today um, people are trying to find the answer in so many different ways, and Um, One of the obstacles is this instant self-gratification. It doesn't really allow you to get to purpose of distraction. You know, people are always staring at their cell phones, you know. Um, Everything has to be instant. They Google this and they Google that. And the segues to knowledge aren't there because they're just cherry picking uh, this and that and then trying to, to construct that into a holistic view of something. Um, you know, back, back in back in the old days when I first uh, entered, you know, we studied things in a sequence. There was a chronological order to our revelations to the enlightenment process, one thing connected to the next. You were guided into a a stream of uh, consciousness, a consciousness it's so that, important. that formed. You it's, know, you didn't have oh to force
0: it's so um, important.
1: The things, you know, it was so important to us, you know, like it I still remember. So important to me. You no, know, I mean, I'm talking about back in the 60s, mm-hmm. you know, when I was late teens and even, yeah, uh, late teens. I would drive from San Diego <laughs> to San Francisco. It's a nine hour drive to go to the only <laughs> occult shop, which shop that was around. And it would take me nine hours to drive there. And I would go there and and I would gather the things I needed for my practice that I couldn't do on my own. But the journey was a sacred journey. You know, we, you and I, as we know, we've had people who live in Connecticut, which is a 20 minute or 30 minute ride, who we've offered individual instruction to and they say, Oh, I don't want to drive out of state. Well, you know, it's 20 minutes. But that that idea of how I'm going to limit myself, you know. In my day, I would take a nine-hour drive, and it was a sacred journey to a place that I could get the things that I felt I needed, and then nine hours back. But I did it because of my dedication to seeking purpose, to understanding where I was in the scheme of it all, and what I had to contribute, and what I could receive. Um, And that kind of effort and that kind of focus is really very, very important. But what I see a lot today is everything's instant. And because it's instant, if anything's going to take more time, it's not worth it. You get frustrated. You know, even waiting for something to download, I've seen people give up. You know, because oh, it's just you know, it's not worth it. It's taking too long. Well, what is taking too long for what? Taking too long for enlightenment? Taking too long to receive knowledge? Um, I I don't think there is such a concept. I think you take the time that's needed. Um, and I think that that's what our ancestors were all about. They immersed themselves in the importance of what was happening at the time. Mm-hmm. They received, they were open, they worked with it. Um, one of my early teachers used to say, a witch never gives up, because when you give up, you lose your power. So when you have a phrase like, and as my will, so moted it be, if you end a spell with that, what you've just said is, as strong as my personal will is, I, I put that into the spell, that the spell be as complete But if your will is weak, then what you've just said to your spell is be as weak as I am. Mm -hmm. If I never follow through, but I say, as my will is so mo be, you said to the spell, from someone who never follows through or rarely follows through, you know, uh, be a powerful spell. Um, Whereas if your will is solid, if you complete the things that you set out to do, if you say I'm going to carve a wand, and you do, you don't stop until it's done, then when you make a command like, as if my will so might it be, it has power because you followed through. You're putting that emphasis into the spell.
0: Right, and, and uh, Michael in the, in the um, chat room says, the more you put into your search or your journey, the more rewarding it will be. It's the time you take, the it's the time and the effort that you put in it that makes the difference. And this also makes it more sacred. Again, yes. bringing the sacredness back to sacredness is huge. What what you do, yeah,
1: because that empowers you. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I hate to use myself as the reference, but you know, going back to the story of driving nine hours to get something, when I came back with that something, oh my god, it was sacred and valuable to me, and I used it sparingly, you know, um, because it held great importance. It, caught, it took me eighteen hours of driving, you know and so to me there was extra juju in that and i felt a sense of accomplishment and I, I would even say pride and i think that that empowered me when i used these things because i had gone to great effort to acquire them um and or even going to great effort to make something of your own uh, all these things contribute and they pile up in your magical resonance all these things you've done and the efforts that you have put out become part of your strength. And I think that if everything that you're doing is, oh, well, if it doesn't happen in a couple minutes, or I don't want to drive down the street to get a candle, so I think I'll just put it off, or oh, this Google thing's taking too long to download, or this article someone wrote is too long, I don't want to read it, it's more than three paragraphs, you know. <laughs> um, I've seen people do that, and, and I think that they don't understand how disempowering that is. Mm. You know, they want something quick and easy and go, okay, yeah, I can do that. Uh, you know, well, yeah, you can do that and it may work for you nicely.
0: Like the film of the bee thing. Yeah, and you know. Um, will but, and...
1: but there is something to be said mm-hmm. for sacredness and for rootedness and the power that you can draw upon. Because when you're low and down and weak, you can tap into something beyond yourself. That's what I do. That's what's gotten us through some pretty hard times. You know, we had the near-fatal car crash in 2015. I had the diagnosis of terminal cancer in 2016. And then in 2017, our house was hit by lightning and devastated by the fire. Um, And those are things greater than I (laughs) am. Greater than you and I are. But it was the rootedness of the things that I held to be true about purpose. That I held to be true about my views of the spirit, and the spirit of the land, and and my craft, and everything I've worked for, and my codes, and what I believe. And one thing I firmly believe from my experience is that the universe is not out to destroy us. We can misinterpret these things. The universe has only plans for our successful spiritual evolution. And when you can fall back into that greater purpose, that greater theme, you can get through things like a near-fatal accident, a cancer diagnosis, your house catching on fire. I don't see these as things done to me. I see them as opportunities for me to draw upon my strengths, to reassure and confirm everything that I've come to believe over time. Mm -hmm. And it's just a blessing in disguise.
0: And that is a blessing to me because I am a maniac. Hmm. <laughs> it keeps me on track. Yeah.
1: But this is rootedness. you know this is where you know when the winds blow hard, the roots of that tree are holding it in place and the branches sway, but it's those roots that are going to keep that tree in place when the storms come. So to me, that's the value of rootedness when the storms of life come to me and to Stephanie. We dig in with the roots that deep, that dig deeply into spirituality, into ancestral views, uh, into the origin, the fount. And we get through the storm. We weather the storm because of the security of the roots.
0: Absolutely, that's a beautiful. Morning.
1: And everyone else can as well.
0: Mm-hmm. No,
1: I think we might end a little bit early. Um, we've uh, covered a lot of material, a lot of ground. I think we would just be going back over everything we've said and mm-hmm. probably climb back up on the soapbox or something. We don't want to do that. So.
0: But, but I do want to say, again, mm-hmm. a, what do I say, a justice uh, commercial, mm. um, a promotion, um, <coughs> a couple of things. I'm still trying to get back to Raven to bring that up to current. However, what I have envisioned is I'm going to have a very big Black Friday sale on Black Friday, which will be a week from this coming Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, and also on Cyber Monday. It will go through the whole weekend. I'm going to have some great deals on gifts that you may want to give for you all. Um, I am bringing back known as attic, so there will be previously cherished items that you'll find in there at some wonderful prices. And I ne- we never sell anything that's, that's not quality or in you know excellent condition, That's not the way we do it. So I just wanted to tell you that about Ravensfloth and also Ian, we'll, I'll be working on the House of Vermatti again to bring that up to date. We really want to make that into um, our main focus, our umbrella, so um, you know there's just Raven and I are just um, uh, working at all of this, trying to get all of this done in between all the other personal life things that are occurring at the same time and we appreciate so much everybody's continued support and, um, and your um, interest in what we do and what, we're, what we continue to do. We'll be announcing that our um, our courses will be reopening again um, after the first of the year. The Italian Witchcraft and um, uh, Ashbush and Willow and Inner Mysteries will be opening up again for registration. Our our current course, which goes very well with the topic that we have tonight, which is the ancient roots of witchcraft, our course called um, Old World Witchcraft. It's 13 months long, and it is a fantastic, if I do say so myself, foundational um, course of study that is rooted in these old ancient ways. And um, there's not only information uh, involved in the lesson material, but there's also um, exercises for people to do, and there's an online uh, Facebook group. Um, which isn't as active as it should be, but it's there for people to ask questions, to discuss, That cetera. That actually goes along with all of our courses of study. So I just wanted to drop that on you you. Yeah,
1: I would also like to mention that um, <clears throat> I received a word oh, that my yes. publisher, yes. Wiser, um, has accepted uh, my proposal for a book titled The Arts of Witchery.
0: Congratulations.
1: Thank you. What well, we knew in the night. Mm-hmm. And it's a combination of ever ancient, ever new because it, I'm trying to bring back the things that were forgotten and the things that were jettisoned by um, things that had normally appeared in books in the 60s was jettisoned in the 1980s and on because after the, well, the 1980s began the, the self-styled approach that it was all within you, it was all intuitive, do your own thing. And they dropped a lot of the traditional stuff and uh, some of the arts of the craft um, that were well known in the 50s and 60s to the degree that a lot of these things aren't known anymore. They just haven't been passed on. So the book is an attempt to bring back the, these these important things to bring back the rootedness, but to blend it back in, you know, for modern people contemporary practice. But the book actually will cover the whole gamut—the arts of witchery, its spellcrafting, its divination, you know, its, it's healing arts, its um, spirit work, um, tools and charms—and it covers the whole gamut of things. So all of the arts of witchcraft, are things that people would, you know, think about this being an art of witchcraft, will be in the book. Um, it's going to take me quite a long time to write it—probably up to six months. And then it has to go to the publisher for editing and the artwork and uh, cover design and all that stuff. So books take a long time to come out. Um, But I just throw that out there. Um, This is probably not probably, it is the accumulation of some 47 years of adult practice of witchcraft that I'm putting into um, one volume. So it should be significant reading.
0: Yes. It will be. I can't wait to see what the cover is, which of course yeah. Raven has no control over. But I still, yeah. it's going to be awesome, I'm sure.
1: I hope it will be a good cover. Yeah. You don't always get the cover that you imagined. Sometimes you get ones that you don't like at all, and I've had a couple of those. Right. Um, but you know, and even titles of the book, uh, the publisher has final say over yeah. cover, over title, and sometimes even over what you're writing. Um, so a book doesn't always turn out to be the way the author had envisioned it when we started out. But but I'm a stubborn Aries and I, I, <laughs> I normally um, get it close to what I wanted. So I guess that's a, that's a wrap for tonight.
0: That's a wrap for tonight. We thank
1: you all for listening to the show. Um, we hope that some of the things we talked about um, can give you food for thought. And
0: um, we hope that you have a blessed um, thanksgiving um, however you celebrate it um, the day of showing gratitude and uh, we will certainly be doing that as we do each and every day of our lives mm-hmm. because without you we cannot live the life that we live and we would not have come to, to today to where we are without your support right. and love you. and prayers and, and <coughs> everything that you contribute to our lives.
1: Absolutely. You folks are the wing beneath our wings.
0: So thank you so much, and good night until you hear from us again.
1: Be blessed and be witchy.
0: Seasons of the Witch signing off.